Let's go ahead and read together where we're at in the book of Romans, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you for common grace, the common graces that you give to us each and every day, the common grace that we are standing right now, that we are breathing and that we are together, we can talk and see and have relationships here on earth. We praise you for those things and much more and Yet we also, more specifically, and for eternity, praise you for special saving grace. Lord, that you would come and do that which we could not. We praise you for taking on the wrath of the Father. We praise you for spilling your own blood. We praise you for conquering death. For you could not stay dead, Jesus for you never sinned. And so, Lord, we have hope that we too will raise with you someday. And so, Lord, as we consider this text and the righteousness of you, Lord, continue to humble us, humble this church, uh, bring us great humility, for we are nothing without you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you, um, probably more than I'm aware of, have had the opportunity to go to uh, bl the Black Hills, from my understanding, of South Dakota uh, to visit one of those national uh, memorials or monuments in South Dakota in our country called Mount Rushmore. Uh, I know that is a spectacle, an amazing thing to see as you see these giant uh, 60 plus foot heads with eyes, from my understanding, that are 11 foot high staring back at you. And maybe in some ways it's kind of odd. I don't know. I've never been there. But this project was overseen by a designer. And I don't know if I'm getting his name right, but it's Gutzen Borglum, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. And he designed this, and then they went forward with it because, quote, as he said, it was chosen to represent the nation's birth, growth, development, and preservation, respectively, of the country of the United States of America. 
And so those four men and their heads, uh, they're not just heads, they represent something. You're, we're looking at it, and then you look into the past of these four, what we would deem as great men of the past that helped found this country in many ways and had great impact. I realize if I threw that out there for all of us to debate, we'd probably have various opinions, though, too. So we won't do that this morning. But if I went around here and asked any of you, either currently or if you used to have men or women of your past, maybe you guys could create your kind of Mount Rushmore of men and women in your life. People that you look to that had great impact on your life. Again, maybe it was 30 years ago or maybe it's currently someone that's investing into you and doing things that is having great impact now and for eternity. And what happens over time, as time goes on, and those people, if you want to say, pass away or go out of our life, many times we look to them almost as if they're flawless. Maybe we have a few of men, men or women in our life that we revere them so highly that we almost look at as flawless people. It's hard when someone reveals to us maybe some darkness or flaws in someone's life that we reveal or revere so much. And it kind of like the Mount Rushmore, right, sculptures, it kind of deteriorates the images of these people in our mind. Well, today it's necessary for Paul to bring up two type of men of the past, men that were highly respected, revered, and may I be careful to say probably even worshipped by many of the Jewish people in some way. And Paul knew that at some point he needs to be even more clear that the God of the new covenant is the exact same God of the old covenant as we saw last week in verse 30. And this week again, we keep bringing up this courtroom scene. This week, once again, Paul acts as a good lawyer or an apologist of the faith as he anticipates a question that they undoubtedly would have asked. And they would have had this question on their minds of these men in particular. And so he knew he needed to be crystal clear based on what God's word says and actually kind of chisel away at the lives of these two men that these people in the church of Rome would have looked to with immense, immense, almost worship in some ways. And so for the sake of reminding the church in Rome that the reason any of us, including these men of faith of the Old Testament in all of history are right with God is due to God alone. And so with that said, let's look at Romans chapter four, verse one, at Paul's anticipated question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. Again, Paul's anticipating and ready to answer a question that Jewish Christians would have undoubtedly for sure had in their mind. You have made it abundantly clear that the way in which sinful men, Paul, you have made it abundantly clear that the way we sinful men are made right with a holy God is through the righteousness that is not our own, which we've heard called the, an alien righteousness. You told us in chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, right? The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law or separate from the law, the righteousness of God, and it's through or the conduit through faith 
in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so we're made right with God by God through God himself, purchasing us back into or redeeming us back into the family through his son, Jesus Christ. And his son, Jesus Christ, he accomplished it and he applied it. As God the Father put him forward, that's what the text said, he put him forward as a sacrifice with his own blood as a gift and through faith, the conduit, through faith, we believe. And then last week, Paul ended our time, which ties into this week that he felt necessary to say, essentially, remember, this God is one. In verse 29 and 30, he said, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he the God of the Gentiles only? And he says, yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. In other words, God is God. God is the God of Gentiles. God is the God of the Jews. God is God. And so the Jews have heard this, but what about the father of all fathers? What about Abraham? And again, Paul knew he would have to deal with Abraham. Paul is a Jew himself. He understands this deep-seated affection and love and reverence for Abraham. And so here Paul pens this question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Or the NASB, if you're holding that, it says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? And I actually like, I wouldn't recommend study from it all the time, but I really like the New Living Translation, where it says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being right with God? What about the guy? We have to see what Abraham has to say about this whole thing. Okay, we hear you, Paul, but we have to hear from Abraham on this. This is our guy. This is the one we look to. It's not clear that he had something to do with his relationship with God, right, Paul? He had something to do with it. Did not Abraham become right with God? Yes, through God, but also Abraham being a part of him being right with God. And so for us to get an idea of how the Jews would have looked at Abraham, I think it would have been potentially somewhat like how many of us who may look at our founding fathers of our country. People groups draw from history, right? That's what we do. Whatever people group you're a part of, including your your immediate family, and then you go out from there, people groups draw from history of their particular people, and they have a tendency as they appreciate whatever people group they're a part of to inflate men and women of the past. We have that tendency to kind of forget flaws and we inflate people. What we do is they, we look back and we consider what they did for the country or a people group. And so for us, it may be guys like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Franklin, Hamilton, and so on. We obviously appreciate these guys so much and the freedoms in which they helped found our country on. At the same time, it's easy because of what they did to kind of have those things outweigh the many black eyes and not so good things that these guys also did that we don't necessarily like to talk about. In turn, not that we would literally say this, 
I, I realize that. None of us in this room would literally say this, but we have a tendency to almost look at them like they're sinless. Uh, we do that in our own families almost. I remember dad of the past, or I remember grandpa, like that guy did no wrong in my eyes. And this also happens. We even have a tendency to get defensive, don't we? We even have a tendency to get defensive when men or women are those of the past that we revere are pressed against a little bit. Or they're challenged in a way to reveal some of the things that we consider kind of heroes that they in many ways weren't so heroic maybe after all. Again, it's no different than sometimes the way we revere parents or grandparents over time. And so Abraham was kind of like that hero, that grandparent, or that he was the founding guy of the Jews. And in their eyes, he, right, began the journey to the promised land. He up and left his family and began going. In many ways, right, this thing was built off the back of Abraham. Abraham could do no wrong in the eyes of a Jew, and they would for sure get defensive, even today, by the way, of those who are truly Jewish, get defensive when someone pokes holes in Abraham. One guy said in a rabbinic teachings, the rabbis so affectionately called him a bag of myrrh. That's what they called him, saying, just as myrrh is the most excellent of spices, Abraham was the chief of the righteous. Abraham. Listen, Paul, if God is one God of both Jews and Gentiles, as you're saying, our father, Father Abraham, at least had to have something to do with him being right. In some ways, I'm actually surprised here that Paul doesn't bring up himself. Like, Guys, the way you're revering him, I had to speak out against this to people, to the church in Philippi. Remember, he kind of paraphrased and he said, if I myself have reason for confidence in myself, like I would have that. If anyone thinks they have reason for confidence in the flesh, it's me. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. You guys remember that text. Verse three, for we are the circumcision who worship by spirit of God, glory of Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. So remember he was fighting against this to Philippi. And I think we can do this in churches even where we revere men who are leaders and hey, no, it's not those men that have done. And Paul's saying this to the church in Philippi. Paul knew though for this people, for Jews with this rich, deep seated history, these guys who loved keeping and practicing rules and rituals and traditions. They loved digging into their past and their identity was wrapped up in their Jewishness. Paul had to anticipate this question and anticipating them saying, okay, I get you've been clear on this, but this is our guy. And so Paul goes on here in the, in the text and says, if, okay, if, hypothetically speaking, if Abraham would have been justified by works or if he could have actually accomplished this, well, then, yeah, I guess he would have something to boast in. Look at verse two with me. If, Paul responds to his question he brings up, if Abraham was justified by works, well, yeah, he has something to boast about. 
but not before God. If Abraham was justified by what he did, which he didn't do, then yeah, I guess he would have something to boast in for sure. I think the NIV gets this right. It says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, yeah, he had something to boast about. It's somewhat like a high school athlete. There's some athletes in here, athletes of the past, who says, Dad, if I was six, just hypothetically speaking, if I was six inches taller, you think I would have made the NBA? Yeah, I guess, but you're not. Or, hey, Mom, if I had an extra 20 grand in, like, the bank, could we have bought, like, a really sweet car for my first car? Yeah, but you got the minivan, sorry. (laughs) Right, or, Dad, if I would have got just, like, if I would have got a 36 on my ACT, I would have got to go to Harvard instead of, and I won't name another school in case someone goes there. (laughs) Okay, that's a good hypothetical thing to come up with, but you didn't. Yes, if Abraham lived perfectly to every single jot and tittle, every nook and cranny of God's holy, perfect standard, yes, he would have something to boast in. But why are we even talking about that? Because that didn't happen. I mean, Jews, are you forgetting Abraham? I mean, he took an amazing leap of obedience, if you want to say, and faith as he left the pagan-filled land of Ur. Yes, at the same time, this guy was far from perfect, guys. Again, they, they forgot about him. You know, he was the guy saying something such as this would typically have a Jew get defensive here. Like, you're going to start telling me how Abraham wasn't perfect? Where are we going with this? Jews, do you not remember whose dad was, first of all? Do you remember his dad? He was brought up in Joshua 20. For the great idolater, so Abraham was also raised an idolater, like they worshipped idols. Don't forget that when Abraham did leave and head to the promised land, he didn't actually do it the way God told him to do it. He brought along some people with him, one of them his nephew Lot, who had a few struggles in the land of Sodom. Abraham then wasted some decade plus in a place he wasn't supposed to be as he journeyed. The great father Abraham in Genesis 12, during a famine in the land, Abraham runs to, of all places, the pagan pagan worshiping Egypt, right? Do you guys remember this? He runs to Egypt, and while he's there, what's he do? He lies about his wife, saying it's his sister doing to being, he was scared that he was going to be killed so that they could take her. He did that again in chapter 20, so he lied. In chapter 16 of Genesis, when Abraham and his wife become impatient with the Lord's promises, for some crazy reason, his wife Sarah suggests Abraham to then go sleep with another woman, and he does it. Instead of saying faithful Lord and responding to his wife and being like, "Uh, no, that's not godly, He then ends up at 86 years old, lying with Hagar and having a son named Ishmael. And then if you read Genesis 16 on your own, which ends up, you will see the immediate consequences of him sleeping with Hagar. By the way, let's not lose sight of the history of his sleeping with her and the sin that took place actually runs 
all the way out till today in the struggles and wars that are going on in the Middle East. Dear people, yes, I guess if Abraham would perfectly have lived out and not broken any of the law, yeah, he could boast, but like, by the way, he didn't. None of us, including this liar, Abraham, this deceiver, Abraham, this adulterer, Abraham, can stand on our own before a holy God. He wasn't so great after all. Our right standing with God, Gentiles, and you specifically, Jews, including Abraham's, is all from God, it's all through God, and it's all of God. We all sin. I just told you that and fall short of God's glory. Abraham is part of what we're going to get to in verse 5. He was part of the ungodly. This would have shaken the Jews. Imagine if someone you revered, who you knew maybe, okay, and they start saying, hold on a second, slow down. The Lord used him, but this person is not as holy as you think he was. Again, this picture, you know, your kids kind of think you're superhuman for a time, and then they kind of think you're weird. I'm in a couple stages right now, okay? (laughs) And then they come to realize you're sinful too, just like them. We may also be able to oh so subtly resonate for those who are into politics and the history of America, and someone begins to kind of poke holes in these guys that we've revered so highly, or some of us sports guys who idolize a certain athlete and then you see that their life is actually pretty dark. Maybe some of us don't love some of the publicity that came out of the Super Bowl after someone who never stepped on the field and all the sins that of someone's life has laid out before you. Why? Because we want our idols to be idols, right? We want them to be perfect. We want them to be without blemish. We want to see them in the best light. But that's why Paul said we cannot boast in self or anyone else around us. As we know, all people, even those who we consider the greatest of people, this is really important, will fail us. All our parents failed us. All us parents sitting in the room will fail our kids and all our kids will fail their kids. Every single one of us will fail in friendships in some capacity. Why? We're sinners. We're tainted by sin. We live in a, in a world of sin. And I think it's really important for all of us to be reminded, we will fail one another. I will fail you. You will fail me if I already haven't, because I probably have. Josh said in his class last week, and I love it, he says, we cannot, oh, we must not look to find in one another what we can only get from God. We cannot do that. We cannot try and fill our cups with things of one another that we can only fill them with that which God supplies. We cannot look to one another with what we only find in God. If that is the expectation all of us will come up empty every single time. Now, it's not in the text, but at this point in chapter four, you could potentially see some of the Jews here and their eyes kind of 
nervous and shocked, glazed over, disappointed. Now, don't get me wrong, Jewish people. Like, Abraham did amazing things for our people, but if you are thinking Abraham had something to do with his rightness, you're mistaken. God, in spite of Abram, and due to his sovereign mercy and grace in Abram's life, did amazing things through Abraham. It wasn't Abraham who did it. It was God doing it through Abraham. Consider that out of all the people in the land of Ur, all of the idol worshipers in Ur, Ur, all of the pagan nation that was there, God sovereignly chose Abraham. It was was clearly not because anything was special in Abraham. Abraham was not off in the corner just worshiping the true God by himself. No, he was worshiping pagan idols. He ignored the guy who wrote this letter, by the way, Paul. Paul was not out searching for God when God came and found him. No one would argue that. God came and got him, and then God did through Paul amazing work. We also have a tendency nowadays to think that Paul was superhuman. He wasn't. God clearly came and searched for them and called them and changed the entire direction of their lives. And then God called him and chose him to be the patriarch. God made the promise that he then would keep. Abraham didn't keep the promise. God kept it. We know the promise, or Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant, which I would like to change it to God's covenant, which he kept through Abraham. It wasn't Abraham's covenant that he kept. No, it was God's covenant that he kept, and he did it through Abraham. Genesis 12 says this. Think, look at how many times it says, I. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. The I there is God. As I said, it was God who held on to Abraham. For think about it, it was not but seven verses later after this promise was made that Abraham then falls into a lie. It's the same picture. They're just brought through the flood, right? Noah and his family gets brought through the flood. He gets off the boat. We don't know how long it was, but we don't have to talk about the heinous sin that he then falls into immediately. Noah didn't keep the covenant. God kept it. In spite of this, just as Paul has been hammering home to the church Rome, it was through faith in God and dependence on God and his promises that Abraham was given and declared righteous. Look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a really key, what, five words in the word of God. What does the scripture say? Not, not what do we feel like it says, Jews, or not what are your emotions about the situation. No, what does it actually say? I've heard many times over the years, Ray said it, many people said it. If God said it and says it, that what? Settles it. What does the scripture say? In spite of Abraham's sin and shortcomings of doubt, we see that Abraham believed and it was counted to him. Verse 3 of our text today was t- taken directly from Genesis 15. And we can see that on the screen. 
after these things, and watch the couple times where it comes from here. After these things, the word of the Lord came in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. I am. Verse two, Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me for I continue childlessness? Verse three, and Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. What's happening? And behold, the word of the Lord came. The promise was reset. Remember, remember, trust in the promises, trust in God's word. He brings them out. He says, look to the heavens. Trust what I told you. Essentially, God is saying, Abraham, trust me. Trust my words. Believe what I said. Believe my word. Have faith. It is final. I made the promises. I will keep the promises. I promise. What will happen will happen. It just hasn't happened yet. I'm the Lord, your God. So what does the scripture say? Verse six. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and his words, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He declared him righteous. He had faith in what he said and that he was God. What just happened to Abraham in Genesis 15? Justification. Justification just happened in Genesis 15. Declared, making right. Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteous. The legal judicial transaction just took place in Genesis 15 through faith in God alone. Robin Ventura says this in his commentary. Faith is the singular means through which a person receives righteousness and is made right with God. Abraham was well past 80 years and his wife Sarah had never conceived. Nevertheless, he still believed that God would perform that which he promised. He believed God would do what God said he would do, which means he took God at his word. Nothing is mentioned about Abraham working in order to be made right with the Lord. There's nothing about his law keeping. No, he was justified by faith alone. Faith was the singular channel through which he was counted righteous. End quote. Jews, yes, even Abraham, the great Abraham was unrighteous, wicked, ungodly, evil. He too needed the righteousness of another for in himself he had no righteousness. Abraham is not just the father of the Jews, He's also the father of the Gentiles, all believers. And Paul brings this up in Galatians. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, those who believed God in the previous verse, and it was counted to them as righteousness. I think it's important to be clear here that this faith in which Abram was then given to Abraham was a gift. Ephesians 2 says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Now this hopefully is really helpful. This is not a bargaining thing here between Abraham and God, right? God, I'll give you my faith and you give me your righteousness. Let's work this thing out. I'll give you my, and then God says, okay, that sounds good. Okay, I'll give you my righteousness, but make sure you give me your faith. 
Abraham did not offer his faith to God, and then God in return offered his righteousness to Abraham. It's through faith God declared, counted, imputed, right, his righteousness onto Abraham by the kind intentions of his will. Jesus took on our sin. Jesus was imputed, and he credited his righteousness into our account, and he graciously did that, and it was all a gift, that which we did not deserve. Notice the initiator. I think the picture's on your screen, I believe. This transaction here, right? Who was the initiator and who then is the completer of the transaction? Who initiated the transaction? Who completed the transaction? And then Paul gives us a little more help of clarity with some, a picture of money and business. If you want to say, look at verse four and five. God's ways aren't our ways. We can't look at this in the way we think logically almost normally on things such as this. Verse four, not to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who works, works. His wages are not counted as a gift, but are as his due. And so Paul brings up this very simple analogy. It's not hard for any of us to understand. If you work, there is typically a determined set wage for that which you're working for. And you are then owed money, literally owed money, for the work that is agreed upon that you've done. In other words, if you're offered an hour, hourly job or a salary job, it's typically before you take the job, there is a determined amount of money that is agreed upon. Let's say 20 bucks an hour that you then work, right? And then you are due that money. You are owed that money. And there's a sense where your employer is in debt to you. He has to pay you for the work that is your due. And I realize sometimes bosses can give unexpected bonuses and things like that. But to the one who works, their due is equal to that which work was put in. There is a very real sense where when one works, they are entitled to what they have earned because of their work. They're paid justly. Their wages earned for their work. It's not a gift. This is the typical system and philosophy of work here on earth. It's in the context, if you remember, to the church in Thessalonica that kept looking, thinking he was coming back any time, and Paul called them out for it. Right? If you remember this, he says, we command you in, the, uh, in 2 Thessalonians, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. There's a bunch of lazy people out there just sitting around. Oh, he's coming back anytime. He says, You're, stop being lazy. Get to work. Verse 10, he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Don't eat. You don't get to eat if you don't work. Verse 12, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn justly their own living. As we know, if this line of thinking pertains to the way in which one is made right with God, we are all under condemnation. We are all under the wrath of God. Abraham, Paul, and we'll get to David in a second, and our appointment in hell is secured. We will be there if it's based on our work. But we know that Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. Right? He came to call sinners to repentance. All other religions of the world and the typical mindset of mankind is, I will do this, I will get this. I will do this, 
I will get this. In turn, those outside of Christ have various philosophies that they're working by, which are kind of like religions, thinking that if I do this in the end, this will happen. One's the moralist, right? Who thinks based on what they do or don't do on this earth, then God will let them in. The problem, one big problem is, um, we all don't do enough. We are, all aren't good enough. We all would sit here and agree with that statement. I'm pretty sure the great Abraham would agree with that statement based on what he did and did not do. We have the self-righteous ones who think as they compare themselves to those around them that they're oh so great compared to whoever that may be. They like to use like the extreme sins that we would like to say of the day. The problem is whoever fails in one point is still under the wrath of God. You have the religious one who thinks based on their commitment to the, to the church and the rules and regulations and, well, are you committed enough? Did you go to enough meetings? Did, did you worship enough? Oh, you prayed for two hours today? Why didn't you pray for four hours today? Is God not worth that type of mindset? And we have the heritage worshiper, right? Surely I'm in. Like, do you know my family name? Do you know how my parents serve this church? I gotta be in. We're from the line of Abraham. The problem with all these is that thinking doesn't match up with what the word of God actually says, verse five. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's the one who comes to the end of the rope, who abandons all their work, who for a time, yeah, thought because I was good enough or because I did it enough or because I gave enough or because I'm part of this family. And they come to the point where they're like, none of that gets me in. And some of us think that sometimes here, we know that none of us would say literally those things get me in. But I know, we know that creeps into our thinking sometimes. I'm connected to this person. I did this for this person. But the Bible says all must repent and believe. All must trust, all must have dependence on what he did alone, not one ounce of what I've done or do. Our faith does not make us worthy of the gift of grace. Our faith does not make us worthy of the gift of grace. Only God's righteousness and imputed righteousness to us makes us worthy. And so in that sense, that's why we're amazed. God does this for those, which included Paul, the ungodly. This is what makes it amazing. It's the wicked people. He is putting Abraham in the same camp as the wicked. Or impious, I think is how it, it, someone brought up this word here. It's having no regard or reverence or all. And it's those who deserve the full regard of God's wrath who because they don't reverence and they aren't amazed by God. Paul said to young Timothy, you know, young guys, we, we know we can kind of get big-headed and prideful. And he says, hey, don't forget, young Timothy, the law is not for the just. It's the only, well, there's only one who's just. There's only one that you can give to these people, young Timothy. There's only one you can preach and teach about. 
And he put himself in that same category. He said, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking about myself too. I, I was, I received mercy, yeah, because formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent. I was a wicked man. And so what's Paul saying? Salvation is not a reward you are due. Salvation is not, you are not, you are not promised salvation. You are not due salvation Neither was Abraham, neither are we, neither is Paul, and neither will be David, as we'll get to in a second. Abraham had nothing to do with it. It was Jesus showing favor on those who are wicked. Look at God's righteousness credited to David. He dealt with Abraham. He brought up the work analogy, and then he brings up David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Paul here speaks, obviously, of King David. And he brings up the blessing of David saying, it was counted righteousness to me. Why did David know that it was counted, that it was an unmerited favor on him? Well, David understood how wretched he was. David was no saint in and of himself. He was made a saint. Now, could you imagine with me? It's always astounding to me to think that someone's sins and one that we point to a lot especially guys, was written down for millions upon millions of people to read in churches for all of history. And not just any sin, his sexual depravity was written in a book that we actually go to and read. And when you think of his sexual depravity, it started with David's lack of leadership that led to his what? Sin, laziness, as he stayed behind during the war. And his laziness, it led to what? His wandering eyes. Guys in here, we can take all from this. Laziness, hanging out, doing what you shouldn't be doing, leads to wandering eyes. Then his lust-filled heart and eyes then leads to lying with another man's wife. And then his lying with Bathsheba, sleeping with Bathsheba, led to then more lying, then his sleeping with another man's wife led to then the killing of a guy who was out protecting him while he was back lying with her. Again, he has the guy who was out defending then killed because of his sin and his shame. David was no saint on his own. And so Jews, church, we cannot put our hope and trust in humans. David's rightness with God was clearly not due to how awesome David was. He was a wretched, evil man whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And this is where this psalm's brought up. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
Justification. Sin forgiven, sin covered. David has no sins counted against him. His impurities, his lies, his lusts, his deceits are covered. They are made right because not of him, because of God. And then he goes on in this text. This is the text that he goes to or he writes that his bones were wasting away. When we're in sin, it has physical impact on us. His bones are wasting away. Day and night, God's hand heavy on him. And then he says, I acknowledge my sin and I did not cover my sin. I will confess my transgressions and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Be encouraged here. Look at verse eight again. The Lord will not count sin. Blessed is man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. The eternal count room of God, the evidences that could be brought forth, God himself is the judge. You're standing there before him and he will not take one of your sins for those who have faith in Jesus into account. Not one of your sins is gonna be named on judgment day if you are his. Not one. And David would praise the Lord because of this. Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He will not count a one. It is credited to Christ's account and Christ's righteousness credited to us. No condemnation. Why? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The church in Rome needed to hear this. I think some of us may need, we all need to hear this. We are blessed. We are happy. You can translate that. Because of being made right with God because of God, and at the end, he will not count one sin against you if you are truly his. To the saints in Rome, to Faith Bible Church, be reminded the God of the old covenant is the God of the new covenant. We are saints because of the Savior. And in the end, we don't live in fear of God hiding in a corner, scared to death. We live in fear of reverence of God, amazed that in the end, he will not count one sin against us because of Christ. Be amazed. As we come to the Lord's table, be amazed. Consider what has been said as we prepare for this table. We too have a tendency to forget that just how also depraved Romans 3, 9 through 20, we are, we were, outside of Christ. I think if we were true to ourselves, maybe in many ways, we would still say, yeah, I was, I was a pretty good kid. Some of us may say that before I was saved. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. It's not what the Bible says. You may have been pretty good on the outside. You may have been just like the Jews. 
You may have been an awesome Pharisee, and you were foolish and lost. And we at times fall into the trap of thinking we're pretty good people. We maybe put ourselves maybe on our own Mount Rushmore. As the Jews needed reminded that their heroes in many ways were not so much heroes after all, may we peel back the layers of our own life. As you and I prepare our minds and hearts, may it drive us to emotions. As you think about your sin individually and collectively in this church, the most heinous, ungodly, vile, vulgar, wicked, dark, deceitful sins that no one else in this room knows about. And yet they were placed on and Jesus took on the wrath of God for them. And they're remembered no more. They won't be counted against you. All our sins Jesus imputed to himself and then he gave us a right standing. And we are about to eat and we are about to drink and remember that we are safe in the arms of God because of God. Abraham, David, Mike, Dave, Steve, Joe, whoever it may be, by faith alone in Christ alone. And therefore, Romans 5, since we have been justified by faith, we can breathe and smile. Breathe and be amazed. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we have joy in. And so as we partake today, consider what he did for you and for us. It's amazing when you think of how far we were and for some reason he gave us grace. Let me pray as the worship team comes up and as Carl and Jared come up. And then we'll partake together. Lord Jesus, we too, just as these Jewish Christians and Gentiles in Rome all too quickly forget. And Lord, sad to say, we sometimes fall into the trap of the moralist or the religionist or the one that looks at heritage. And we need reset. We need reminded that Abraham, David, all of us, Paul, are only right with you because of you and because the blood that was spilt and the body that was beaten and the conquering of death. And so as we partake together, may we be amazed. May we be amazed at your righteousness that you gave to us as a gift from beginning to end. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.